All right, if you got a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, just teaching through the gospel according to John. And it's been a few weeks since we've been in this because we had our worship and communion weekend last weekend, and that was great. And then Pastor David kicked off chapter 7 talking about when Jesus was going up to, or his brothers, his, his followers were going up to what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which was one of the annual feasts that the people of God were required to do. And they would literally go to Jerusalem once a year, and they would stay in tents. They would stay in booths, little kind of temporary shelters, because it was to remind them of when they came out of the nation of Egypt and were going into the promised land. It was to remind them about how fragile life is, and so to depend upon God, and that this place is not their home. And so it was literally like a seven-day camping trip, all right? But back then, they would, you know, not as camping as much as we do now. It's called glamping now, right? We make it real nice and real fancy and all this kind of stuff. It's glamorous. And but back then, it was these seven days they would go and stay in these tabernacles, these little tents, literally kind of like hut-like structures that they would build, and they would stay there and celebrate. It was the end of the harvest right at the end of the year, and it's kind of marking this commemorative moment. And, and his disciples, Jesus' disciples, are telling Jesus, hey, Jesus, you need to go up and, and you need to do some PR, you need to kind of rebuild your image because if you don't remember several weeks ago, at the end of chapter six, Jesus lost a lot of followers. And the reason why he lost a lot of followers is because they explicitly said his teaching was too hard. It was too tough because he was talking about his flesh. He was talking about his blood. He was talking about communion. He was talking about how we are to come into this idea, this realization that Jesus is our sacrifice and we're feeding on him. And so he lost a ton of followers and all of his brothers and his followers are now are like, hey, Jesus, you need to go back up to Jerusalem and, and you need to put a, a whole spin on this thing, right? You, you, you got to get some followers back. You got to get some influence back because you've lost a lot of this. And Jesus so lovingly tells him, he says, listen, the time is always right for you. It's not right for me because Jesus was more concerned as we're going to see in this chapter about his private devotion to God than his public influence. And so it's on that basis, his brothers go up, but Jesus hangs back. And now we're going to see in chapter seven, verse 10, down to verse 24, how he finally does go up, but he goes up differently than what they were thinking he should do. So let's look at, let's look at this starting in verse 10. It says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now that's important. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. I love these words, grumbling, muttering. I feel like they should make a comeback in our lingo, all right? Same concept, kind of private talk about him, much muttering. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, a lot to unpack here. I'm gonna hit the first part there, and then the second part I'll bring back around into the, when Jesus responds to what they're saying about him. But first you saw, and I emphasize that it says, Jesus, he went, 
But he didn't go publicly. He went in private. He didn't make a big to do about the fact that he was coming into Jerusalem for this feast. Because Jesus is more concerned about his faithfulness to God than he is about his famousness to people. And that's something that I want us to think about. You know, Jesus obviously is our savior, which means he did what we couldn't do, but he's also our example. He gave us an example of how we are to live in this life. And what you see over and over and over with Jesus is he has a discipline of getting away, of being with his father and developing his inner self, developing his, what we might call our private life. Jesus is not concerned with being a public figure. And the reason why I wanna point this out is because today we live in a culture that's almost the exact opposite of the way Jesus lived. We live in a culture that's way more concerned with our public lives, being influencers or having followers or having friends, which those are very loose terms, right? But we're way more concerned about our public life of, of keeping up with the Joneses, whoever the Joneses are, someone to slash their tires, right? And so that's a joke, by the way. <laughs> But, but keeping up these, these public personas and perceptions all the while not developing our private lives. But I wanna make this point to you and then I'll unpack it some more. So if you're taking notes, you might wanna write this down. If we take care of the private, God will take care of the public. If we take care of the private, God will take care of the public. See, my public life, or let me give you some Bible words. The fruitfulness of my life is not up to me. It's up to the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. The growth was not up to Paul. The planting was. The fruitfulness is not up to me and you, but the faithfulness is. And so what we have to make sure that we are uh, putting the emphasis on of our lives is saying, you know what? I'm not so concerned about my public perception, my public persona, because if I just take care of the private, the public will take care of itself. But how many times have we seen, and it really doesn't matter what profession you go to. Sadly, even in my profession of pastoring, how many times have we seen public figures wrecked by private lives. How many times have we seen public, I mean, it's not just pastors, it's politicians, it's professors. I mean, you, you, I mean, whatever the discipline, whatever the arena, how many times have we seen public figures that we look up to that their private lives catch up to them? And I say this often because your gifts can take you places, but you better make sure you have the character to hold you there. And if we will work on developing our character, 
then God will use our charisma, our gifts, to be as fruitful as he wants them to be. So let me say this to you. Some, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is we become famous too soon. We become public too soon. And now we live in an age of social media, right? Where everything is public. I was reading something the other day that said by the time a, t a kid turns 21, there will be over 10,000 pictures of them on the internet. And, and you don't have to go far. And again, this is not a message against social media because we use it, but it's fine as a form of communications. But you don't have to go far to see. There are so many studies that are starting to come out now, thank God, to show the connection between social media and mental health and how it's creating us to be this overly anxious generation because now we base our identities on what everybody is saying about us. And the addictiveness of this, this one study that I was reading out of Britain, and it's kind of a monumental study, was talking about how social media is built upon the same premise as gambling. And think about how addicting gambling is. Right? Churches make statements about it. And I wonder which statement, which church or denomination is going to put out a statement about social media. It'll be the ninth deadliest sin or eighth deadly, whatever we're at to now, right? But the premise is, you know, when I put money into a slot machine, well, let me say, I've never done it when I've seen people do it, okay? Um, when it goes in, it's the unpredictableness of the behavior that's attracted to you, that you're attracted to. Because if you knew that when you put the money in, nothing good would come out, you wouldn't do it, Right? which is pretty much the case, but it's the idea of reward that makes you stay. When they were talking about how the like button on social media is the same way as gambling. When you put your picture out there, you're gambling, pulling the lever, how many likes am I gonna get? It's built on that. So just the like button alone is making us addicts to public approval. But yet Jesus, notice they were talking about him. Is this a good man? And I'll get into that more in a second. Is this a good man? Is he leading people astray? But Jesus didn't go up to Jerusalem because he needed to hear what people were saying about him. Do they like me? Do they not? Do I need to put out my PR person, spin this news? No. Why? Because Jesus, watch, didn't really care what they were saying about him as long as what he was saying about him was good. And all I'm saying to us is we've got to learn how to develop that same kind of private devotion with the Father or else we will literally go insane. <laughs> We are going insane. Because we don't have a deep-seated sense like Jesus did when he came up out of his baptism when the Father said, this is my son with who I'm well-pleased. See, if the Father is well-pleased with me, it, it matters far less to me what you think about me. But we have 
grown into this, and it's not new, like it's not just came about in social media, it's always happened. It just is a new form of getting it out there now. And we just expanded the circle to a global influence of people. And so now it's even more necessary than ever to make sure you and I are taking care of our private lives and then trust God with our public platforms. See, fame in and of itself is not bad. It's just not the goal. Faithfulness is the goal. Private devotion to God where I am learning to hear from God, where I'm learning to find my identity in God, when who God says I am, what who the word of God says I am, that is what is true about me. And that is what's going to build my foundation as a, as a person to where I know at the end of the day, if they like me or don't like me, I'm okay. See, why do you think John put this in there? Remember, this is John writing this gospel. And I've come back to this over and over again. In John chapter 20, he gives us the purpose of writing this gospel so that we may know that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in his name. What if he put this in there because that's the way to life? Why would John put in there, he went up, but not publicly, but in private? Because he's showing us the example that we are to live our life by. Now, the second part there of what they're saying about him. Now let's get into that. They're saying, some are saying, he's a good man. Others are saying, no, he's leading people astray. Now, I don't have a problem with what they're saying about him. In fact, what they're saying about him is, is them doing what we would call the process of critical thinking. Now, I don't know your age range, but used to back in the day when we would take tests, there would be sections on the test called critical thinking. And I gotta be honest with you, in that section of the test, I didn't like. Because it almost always involves writing. So I'm like, can I just say two plus two equals four and let's get on with life? You know, I wanna, now it's like, I feel like that's all I do is give my opinion on things. It's all I want to do, at least anyway. But the process of critical thinking, by definition, if you just look it up, is this. Critical thinking is I'm thinking critically about what I'm hearing, and I'm trying to figure out, is it true? Is this true? So that is a good thing. In fact, I always want to teach in such a way here where you leave asking the question, is that true? In fact, I don't have a problem, actually, and we'll get into this more in a second, with you listening to me talk and then you asking yourself the question, is that a good man or is he leading us astray? I hope you think critically about everything that I say. Let me go a step further. I hope you think critically about what everybody says to you. Because the teaching that you believe in is the teaching that you're tying yourself to, and watch this, will ultimately determine the quality of your inward life. So the problem with a lot of us is not only are we not developing 
in private, but what we are developing is based on false teaching. So again, I don't have a problem with them saying, is this a good man or is he leading people astray? Now let's look at Jesus' response to that. Verse 15, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Again, they lived in a cultural system where the education system, far different than ours, ours is far more Western, a lot of it comes out of German philosophical thought, but they didn't have university systems, they had teachers, they had rabbis. And so you would learn underneath a rabbi, you'd be apprenticed and mentored into that doctrine, into that way of life, into that teaching. And so they knew he's from Galilee, nothing good comes out of there, right? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. There ain't no rabbis up there, why would they wanna live there? So he didn't have any teaching, he didn't have any formal study from these people. Now, I have heard it said in my profession sometimes from even pastors that said, see, Jesus didn't even study, why do I need to? And I would lovingly say to them, because he's Jesus. You're not. In fact, I tell young pastors all the time, if you're gonna teach the word of God every week, you better study. And I'm not saying seminary is the only way, but I'm saying it's one of the best ways. Because if I'm gonna teach publicly, I better make sure that I've studied it and I believe it to be true. Why? Because as Jesus is going to say, all teaching ties us to something. Look at this, verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now watch this. Jesus is saying, my teaching is not from me. It's not of me. What's interesting in the Greek, what this word is written in such a way that it's called the genitive, which means a possession. Um, and it's the idea of ofness. So he's saying, listen, my teaching is not of me. I don't possess, I don't own it. It's from someone else. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's not God, but he's making a point to say, listen, if you're taking issue with my teaching, you're taking issue with God. Because my teaching is not from me, it's not of me. And then he says this, anyone who wants to do God's will will know whether the teaching is from me or for, from God. So Jesus, by definition here, is making a statement about teachers. We say it like this, all teachers are teaching something that's of someone or from someone. Now he gives another qualifying statement, verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Everybody who speaks, seeks something. Everybody who speaks, seeks something. 
And Jesus says, one of the ways that you know who the teaching is of or who the teaching is from is what is the teacher seeking? Is the teacher seeking her own glory, his own glory? Or are they seeking the glory of another? Now that right there would knock out almost all teachers, right? Because almost all teachers today, and not just today, but throughout eternity, are people who are not, watch this, seeking to free you with truth, but are seeking to manipulate you for themselves. But here's where you and I get ourselves in trouble. We haven't studied enough to be able to know the difference. We haven't studied to see or to ask ourselves this question, who is this teaching tied to? In fact, let me give you another point here. You might want to write this one down. All teaching is tied to someone. All teaching is tied to someone. Now, Jesus ties his teaching to God, to the Father. He says, if you know God's will, you'll know. But how many times, watch this, how many times have you and I wrecked our public lives because we built our private lives on teaching that wasn't tied to God? I'm going to show you how this all works together. But think about this. How many times have you and I wrecked our lives because we didn't ask ourselves this question, who is this teaching tied to? Is this tied to the Father? Or is this tied to a different Father? You say, what do you mean a different father? Let me give you two verses. I don't have them on the screen, but you can just write them down as a reference. First Timothy chapter four, verse one. Paul, in writing to Timothy in what's called one of the pastoral epistles, because Timothy was a young leader, Paul is the apostle writing to him, coaching him, again, like a rabbi. And he says in verse one of First uh, Timothy chapter four, the spirit expressly says that in the latter days, people will leave the faith and believe the teaching of deceitful schemes And watch this, the teaching of demons. The teaching of demons. Have you ever thought about all teaching is tied to someone, and if it's not tied to God, who's it tied to? The devil. You say, well, Pastor, I don't know if I believe that. Well, let me give you one more scripture. John chapter 8, verse 44. We'll get into this when we get into John chapter 8. But let me do, this is Jesus talking. And he's talking to the religious leaders, the teachers. And he's telling them, if you really loved Abraham, you'd love me. Because Abraham loved me. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they said, no, 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 no. Abraham's our father. What you talking about, Willis? And then listen to what Jesus says in verse 44. He says, you are, now listen to this word, of, of, possessed. You are of your father, the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desires. Desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Every teaching has a father. Every teacher is tied, every teaching is tied to someone. And I have this increasing conviction, personally and for our church, to help you, our church, to be able to learn how to think critically about the teaching that you're hearing and ask yourself this question, who's the father of this? Who's this teaching tied to? Because the greatest scandal that is going on today is not that the world is going crazy. It's that Christians are following it. Because we have not studied. And all I can do is take responsibility for the church. And, and to be honestly, the modern church in the last few decades didn't do a great job of helping people think critically about the teaching that they were hearing and ask themselves the question, who's this teaching tied to? But there's all kind of theories out there. And sadly, there's a lot of Christians that are believing theories. Now, this is where you're, I mean, you gotta hear me here and I hope you understand my heart, but it's gonna get a little heavy. Believing theories that are lies and watch this, are demonic. They're demonic. And by that, I mean they are of the devil. That's what Paul told Timothy, the teaching of demons. And Jesus says, any teachers that are seeking their own glory, that's how you know. That's how you know. So if we're gonna develop a private life that lives through public crisis, then we better be able to know, well, is this teaching of God? Because if it's not of God, then it won't withstand. You know, I've been talking about critical thinking and there's no problem with that, but there's a theory that's actually been around for a while, but it's been making itself known more publicly called critical theory. And it has a bunch of different disciplines, a bunch of different you know, ways that it gets applied to different things. And critical thinking is a good thing. But critical theory is not trying to get out what is true. In fact, critical theory is an entire philosophical system that is predicated on tearing down all truths. That's what it's predicated on. It, it looks at everything through a power dynamic and, and puts uh, groups of people into oppressed and oppressors and has an entire system of thought that is trying to teach you something about how the world works and there is no foundation of truth that is biblical in the theory. But yet there's a lot of Christians 
that had bought into this theory. And this happens in every generation. Back when I was in seminary, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was the Bible versus science. If you were alive back then, and there was different theories. One primarily came out of the German school of thought, which is also where critical theory came from, which was called German higher criticism, or the historical critical method. And the concept was all the truth claims of the Bible are not true, and so it looked at the Bible through this just incredibly critical lens and said, oh, well, yeah, I'm just looking at it from literary, but I'm looking at this from the basic assumptions of what it's saying. And so it led, I mean, literally, it, it took the global church into this kind of worldwide tailspin of like where there's science and there's the Bible. Which side are you on? So much so that church leaders had to put out statements about inerrancy, one primarily in 1978, the year I was born. I guess that's a good thing, right? Like, I was born the same year this was put out. That says, no, the Bible's inerrant. We believe it's true. Thank goodness that theory kind of waned in the late 90s. But now the attack is not the science against Bible, but it's what is even science? Have you heard the phrase in the last year and a half? Trust the science? Trust the science? Trust the science, and you're like, what science? Because you're saying this is true, but, but listen to me, and this, I'm saying this, and I hope this comes across in the most pastoral way possible, because I want you to think critically, but it's an entire science that's predicated on now doing away with biology and saying, well, a boy can become a girl. Was that science? Is that true? Who's behind that theory? And, and again, all, all I'm trying to say to you is you better look at the teaching and ask yourself the question, who's behind this? Who's this teaching tied to? Because if you tie yourself to the teaching, you tie yourself to the person. And Jesus is saying, no teaching in any kind of philosophical sense like that is not tied to somebody. And again, I'm talking about, you know, I'm not talking about like the owner's manual on your car. You're like, this is demonic. It ain't from Jesus. <laughs> no. If it's true, it's from Jesus. Jesus didn't feel it necessary, though, to talk about the transmission of your car in the Bible, okay? So let me say it to you like this. Everything that the Bible says is true, but not everything that is true is said in the Bible. Are you with me when I say that? Don't throw stones at me. Call him, you know, he's a heretic. No. Again, in the theories of the Bible against science, the church used to believe that the earth revolved around, uh, that everything revolved around the earth. And then as we got smarter, we said, no, 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 it's the exact opposite. Why do you think Christians believe that everything revolved around them? Because we're selfish. We said, no, it actually revolves around the sun, which I don't know if God meant it that way, but that'll preach. Right? And so I'm not opposed 
And the Bible's not opposed to things that are true outside of the word of God. But what I'm trying to get you to see is there is truth and there are lies. There is no middle. Now, I'll read leadership books or things like that that are not inexpressibly Christian because there's things about leadership that are just true. But the moment I start reading something that they start posing into spiritual things, I have to step back and ask myself a question. Who's this tied to? And there's a lot of us that, are, that just haven't done the hard work enough to tie ourselves to the person of the truth, which is Jesus. So therefore, we're so easily deceived. And, and I love you enough, which is why I'm saying this to you, because I care far less about public opinion and Google reviews. You can go look at some of our Google reviews. Some of them are great and five stars. Some of them are one stars. Like, those people are horrible. They believe the truth. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sorry. I didn't know telling you that things were a sin was wrong. But watch this. We live in a world today that says no. It doesn't put the value on truth. It puts the value on experience. So therefore, my feelings validate what is true. And there's so many Christians. Just by definition, a lot of you here. that have come to conclusions about the truths simply based on how you felt. And what I'm saying to you is this, and I've seen this, I can't tell you how, thousands of times. One or two ways it happens, always, is there's a person who's walking with Jesus that encounters some other teaching and doesn't have the internal fortitude to say, no, that's not Godly, that's not right. And then they are believe the lies and they walk away. Sadly, this is what happens to most Christian students who go to college. And you know what's even crazier? Is parents are paying for it. And you say, well, it's the college's fault. Well, maybe it's your fault as a parent for not teaching your kid what was true. Relying on the school systems to do it instead of teaching them how to think critically. So that's one way it happens. The other way it happens is I feel and I see that the Bible says that how I feel is sinful, so therefore I go out and find teaching that validates my feelings. I've seen this, again, literally thousands of times, people walking away from God, walking away from the church by teachings that were tied to demons. You want to know the irony of all ironies? Look at the next verse, verse 19, just so that you don't think that I'm crazy for even mentioning demons. Jesus says, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. 
See, even the Jewish people knew that teachings were tied to demons. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Isn't that ironic? Jesus is saying the truth, and yet they're saying he has a demon. Watch this. The teaching that is tied to demons will actually demonize the truth and make us feel like we somehow are demonic. Because there's one verse that almost everybody knows, and it's not John 3.16. It's Matthew 7.1. You know what that verse is? Judge not lest you be judged. Have you heard that one? You're telling your friend, you're telling somebody, you're like, listen, listen, I don't know much, but I know what Jesus said. Judge not unless you be judged. Right? And they completely, this is what's crazy. They don't listen or follow Jesus at all, but they know that verse. As how somehow that verse trumps every other verse. And even Christians are like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm like, oh, you know, I uh, shouldn't judge. No. What Jesus is talking about there is a specific form of judgmentalism that's talking about how, because then he says, you know, worry about the logs in your, your eye, not the speck in your brother's eye. And what he's saying is a, a type of viewpoint that thinks that everybody else is wrong and you're always right and you have this arrogance about you. What he's saying is not don't judge, but judge yourself first. That's what he's saying. Then from there, you'll be able to exercise right judgment. So you gotta take the verse in context. So let me give you these last couple verses to show you what I mean. Jesus answered them. I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the father, speaking of Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because of, on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? What is Jesus saying? He's like, you're talking about one part of the law and you missed the whole point. It was never about the law. It was about you being healed. Then verse 24, do not judge by appearances. That would be Matthew 7, 1. But look at what else he says. But judge with right judgment. So when someone quotes Matthew 7, 1 to you, quote John 7, 24 right back. Well, Jesus also said judge with right judgment. So is this right judgment? Now let me show you. Let me tie this all together. Right judgment comes out of right teaching that's tied to the Father that you build your private life on. You want to know why so many public people, their private lives, crash into it? It's because they made bad judgments. And what is judgment? Judgment is simply saying, this is right, this is wrong. This is true, this is a lie. That's right judgment. So Jesus says, judge with right judgment. Well, you will never get right judgment if you listen to wrong teaching. 
and you will ruin your private, watch this, and by private, I mean your soul. The teaching that you build your life on has eternal consequences. Jesus said in Luke 12, don't fear him who can kill the body, but fear him who after the body is killed has the power to throw your soul in hell. And again, this is when you hear teaching like this and you're like, well, that's judgmental. You have to ask yourself the question, am I a good man or not? Am I leading you astray? And some of you will leave here making that judgment, and that's okay. I love you. But loving you is not lying to you. Loving you is telling you the truth and sticking around whether you leave or stay. And saying, and saying, I love you enough, I'll be right here when it all falls apart. And so the church is called to both courage and compassion. Courage of conviction and compassion for the person. But loving a person never involves compromising the truth and lying to them. Never. Because by that definition, watch this, by that definition, Jesus hated people. Anybody willing here to say Jesus hated people? I didn't think so. He loved them. We're going to get to the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8, when Jesus sees the woman at the well. And I'll, I'll teach you how to properly do this based upon how Jesus did it. But you'll see, he doesn't compromise truth. But he's compassionate. And so, is the teaching that you believe more worldly or more of the word? Whatever teaching that is will be the judgments you make. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that's not just a statement, but is a person. Hebrew says, in former days you spoke to us by the prophets, but in these last days you have spoken to us by your son. And Jesus is called the word. And so the words that we believe are the embodiments of people. And so when Jesus showed up, he was the embodiment of truth. And he's gonna say in John 8 that the truth, if we know the truth, it will set us free. And so that's why we can trust Jesus because he didn't come seeking his own glory. He came seeking the glory of his father and the freedom of his followers. 
But God, help us to not be like his early followers who left because they said this teaching is too hard. But let us do the hard work of saying, God, we have come to the conclusion that there is no other person who taught like this, who has the words of life. And so God, I pray for anybody here today who hasn't trusted in Jesus right now that you would open their eyes to see the truth about who he is and you would set them free. No looking around or talking here as we close. This is an extremely personal decision, but one that was never meant to be private in the sense that it doesn't happen in a corporate gathering. You don't share it with us through baptism. But before it becomes public, like through baptism, it must first be private where you confess to God that you believe lies and now you want him as the truth. So if that's you, if you want to trust Jesus right there where you are, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. And it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son Jesus the word to live a perfect life but to die in my place for my sins. I confess my sins and I believe that Jesus rose again beating death and if I trust in him, I'll live eternally. Thank you for loving me. Again, no one looking around or talking, but if you just prayed that with me and you're in one of our locations physically, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see it? Thank you. The truth has set you free. We have men and women are gonna walk around and put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. But then there's a lot of us, as always, that have trusted in Jesus but we don't believe everything that he said is true. And so I wanna challenge you today. I wanna challenge you to ask yourself the question, do I believe what Jesus said is true about marriage, about sexuality, about life, about everything? Because if you believe some other teaching it's tied to some other father. And you have an opportunity to simply confess that. Father, I pray that we would tie our life to your teaching because your teaching is our life. And we know, God, that the culture is never going to like it because you said in verse seven that the world hates you because you testify that their works are evil. Nothing has changed. But God, help us to stand on the courage of conviction that things that you say are true. But then help us move out with compassion to those who don't believe what we say is true. But that we would love them, but we wouldn't lie to them. And God, I pray for our parents that we would get better at helping our kids think critically 
because they encounter so much of this teaching on a daily basis that is tied to demons. So Father, help us to receive this word and then live in the truth of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church.